Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hey y'all, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Covert, and let's talk about vets and pets. And there's been a lot of interesting movement when it comes to our companion animals and uh, their veterinarian care. And there's even a term called cooperative care right now. And so let's talk about these things. So you may have heard of the fear-free vet clinic, and that's a move in a great direction for veterinarians to actually embrace the behavior of the animals is so good and so important. Uh, When I worked at the National Zoo, the pathologist, and indeed the pathologist, when I worked in immunopathology at the um, uh, uh, University of California at San Diego, they all said that disease is 90% stress. So what does that mean? Well, you can interpret it on many levels, but basically when you are stressed, the hormones of stress depress your immune response. So anybody concerned with the health of the animal would definitely want to avoid stressing them, especially at the exact time that they're experiencing medical challenges. So there's lots of things that we can do to help our animals um, resist the problems of stress. I just recently moved my horses home. And the first thing we did is a solid 30 days. We actually went a little longer with minimum change and requirements once they got home because again at the national zoo we learned that the animal has trouble maintaining homeostasis for over 30 days after a move that's why animals are quarantined at zoos it's not that the zoos think oh that other zoo sent us a sick animal betcha No, that's not it at all. All animals are sick. All animals are carrying bacterial or viral diseases or fungal diseases that are subclinical. Subclinical means we're not seeing the symptoms of them. The animal is not showing overt disease, but he still has these infections. So we quarantine the animals then we also know that the animal has a three times greater than normal chance of illness or death for an entire year after a major change, like a move, like losing a partner or a good friend, a serious disease. It goes on and on. So basically, we want to manage change. Some change is good. Too much change, uh, just the animal can't keep up with it. So stress 
can be used stress, a stress that uh, that the animal likes, right? Maybe he loves to have new horses coming to the stable every day, but the excitement and the arousal can be very bad for the horse. And then there's also distress, which is where the animal doesn't want that particular change. And that is equally or possibly worse. So what can vets do? Well, there's a lot they can do. And there is no criticism intended here because vets do what they do best, medical interventions and medical um, you know, management, helping us set up the worming and the vaccines and the normal checks and everything, and then dealing with the diseases and they try to help deal with behavior problems and so forth. So they there came on the scene this um, approach for helping animals cope with veterinary care called Fear Free. And it's based on two F sounds, food and pheromones. So Fear Free, food and pheromones. So I, I actually went to a continuing education course on this. And uh, the vets are careful about, first of all, putting calming pheromones into the air so the animal uh, perceives that instead of, for example, stress hormones or pheromones from the um, patient that just vacated the room. And they're pretty conscientious about it, often wiping their stethoscope clean in between patients of possibly even changing a lab coat and wiping other things down to get rid of any stress pheromones that might linger. So that's one prong of it. And I have questions about that. Like, are we going to find out that you can overdose on pheromones? Are there other problems that we don't know about yet? We've never really exploited this particular way of managing behaviors. I'm a little bit skeptical. I mean, let's just look at a different uh, fragrance that gets put in the air. And that's all these you know, dryer sheets to make your, your laundry smell better. And also... Um, the diffusers that are to make your house air smell cleaner. Oh, it's so fresh and elegant, blah, blah, blah. So check it out because I don't know if all of these have this problem, but there are a fair number of them that are literally carcinogenic. So don't take a deep breath in when you pass a laundromat and it smells all nice and fresh and seriously look into it um, before you use it yourself. I have found that I have a very hard time sleeping in a house that uses those. So I just try to avoid them. And with you know knowing that, I'm a little skeptical about the use of pheromones. Um, 
we know that with regular hormones and regular neurotransmitters and so on, for example, cortisol, that these chemicals, these biochemicals will exude through your skin and even in your breath. And they will go into the lungs and the skin of somebody else in the room. They are literally contagious. So if that's contagious, are pheromones contagious? And what is the side effect of that? So stay tuned. I don't know yet. We'll find out. Okay, then the food aspect of it. Nice, what a nice thing, but wait a minute. Weren't we supposed to not feed animals for 12 hours before a surgery? Not even water? And now all of a sudden it's okay to give them food? And in addition... Food is complex to manage. There's plenty of animals with allergies to things. And some just won't eat. Cannot even begin to tell you how many seminars where I've had to train dogs that didn't want anything to do with food that came from me because they didn't know me. Now, I'll tell you what, it's easy enough to train them. I've had very little problem. Uh, working with dogs that were not food motivated. But if that was the only thing I was relying on, how much of an impact am I going to be able to make in influencing an animal to not be afraid of vet visits, of veterinary procedures, and that kind of thing, just by relying on food. So newsflash. If you have not developed the art of relationship to this extent, get busy because relationship trumps food. Not saying that even with relationship, we don't benefit from using food, but food without relationship is not very effective and it's not very good for the animal or the team. Because there's so much more, you know, if an animal's stressed and does something because he feels compelled to, because he really wants food. Well, we don't keep the animals that hungry to begin with. We learned a serious lesson many years ago. We do not deprive the animals of food. So they're just not that hungry to begin with. Secondly, when they were really hungry, when we learned this lesson that I'm telling you about, we found that when people made behavior contingent on food, like the animals only got food when they did what they were asked to do, animals were stunted. Now that's not going to happen at the vet's office because the um, animal isn't depending on the vet for very much of its food. Whereas in a training situation, the trainers would be managing the food on a full-time basis. So it's not exactly the same problem, but we did learn a serious lesson, and that is don't make food performance-related, at least certainly not 100%. In all of the training programs I've worked in or known of, been around, um, the animal gets its daily 
requirement if they don't do anything. And there's only a certain discretionary margin that the trainer can influence. And that works very well. We don't need to make food bigger than it is. So, so my questions are, is giving food for vet stuff a best practice? And then some won't eat. And the third thing is food does not make up for violation. And this is so important. If you can believe it, I have encountered people that put food on the ground so that a pig would eat the food. These were people that had pet pigs. And then try to give it a vaccine with a needle by coming in behind while it was eating, thinking that because the pig was so enthusiastic about eating that they wouldn't notice the needle. But that's not true. And it's very relationship damaging when you sneak something like that up on an animal. Meanwhile, as you probably remember, I um, was involved with training a bunch of pigs to cooperate with voluntary blood draw, where they got a five inch needle into the vena cava, one inch from the heart. And it only took an hour on average per animal to do this. And we did have one problem, and that's that they all wanted to be first. So we had to go back and teach them their names and teach them to politely wait until it was their turn. And if you look at the video, you will see a little pig politely waiting behind the tech's shoulder for his turn because he's going to be next. So... When those pigs were just had the blood collected without approval and permission, it was a whole different thing. And you can see that in the same video. So by the way, if you want to see these videos, um, you can go to sinalia.com slash press and scroll down and they're there. And uh, this one, I think it shows blank because it's like this could be upsetting to someone. So you have to click on it and go see it at YouTube. But anyway, it shows the pig uh, that wasn't trained getting her blood sampled and she's screaming her head off and very unhappy. And then it shows a trained pig and everything is so quiet. You could hear a pin drop and everybody is happy. And when you look at it, you're going to think that that pig is being uh, bribed with what it's flat orange soda. Okay. If you want to know that's what's in the bottle. But if you watch that pig is not actually given any soda. And the reason is that if you nick the vagal nerve, the vagus nerve, then the pig can fall down dead. So we didn't want to do anything that would cause any movement. And so no uh, delivery of food as a reinforcer would happen until after the whole thing was done and the needle was out of the pig's body. All right. So watch it. You'll see there's no change in the level. 
And uh, that's by design. And it works great that way. We didn't have to worry about it. Um, a past student of mine who's uh, very well known in her own right, uh, Dr. Jennifer Zalig, trained sea lions to lie perfectly still on the surface of the water in order to run, to have them cooperate with running um, metabolism tests. They wanted to check the basal metabolic rate. And so they needed the animal to not be exerting themselves and they needed to collect it for a certain amount of time. And those animals would cooperate with this with no food, no direct contact with the trainers or anything for 20 minutes straight. And I believe they went up to 60 minutes. This is very possible, folks. So I'm totally in with fear-free. I'm not in with food and pheromones. So what should you do instead? Well, I'm glad you asked. First of all, uh, trainers in zoos and so forth have been teaching these kinds of behaviors forever. And I just looked at some videos I have from the mid 80s, but I started in 1978 when I started training dolphins and then came to the zoo and immediately um, started working with all these zoo animals. We would take their weights. We taught them to go into um, squeeze chutes, squeeze cages. And we taught them to allow us to brush their teeth, to take mouth swabs, to examine their teeth, to, um, you know, examine their eyes. It went on and on. We even taught them to allow us to take blood. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Big grief, allergy season. We um to take blood, and the way we took it at the National Zoo was to break capillaries and allow the blood to pull a little bit in the flippers and draw blood off of that. Marine mammals have very unusual, interesting circulation, and you can't go straight into a vein in general like you can with most animals. So we did all this and we taught the animals to allow us to use a breast pump to collect milk or at least theoretically, because in that particular case, what happened is everything was all fun and games until the babies were born. And then these brand new mothers, this was their first baby, were like, get out of here, you scallywag, like a student. And we didn't want to take milk when, you know, just before the baby's born, the milk will actually be coming out of the nipples a little bit. But we didn't want to take any of that milk because that has colostrum, which is the baby's passive immunity. And so we left all of that. And then when the baby was actually suckling, the females were like, yeah, right. 
But I believe that as the experience grew, they would pretty quickly um, be willing to let us take blood, especially if they didn't have a baby on them. In other words, uh, why would you have to collect milk from a mother? And that would be if for some reason the baby could not nurse, right? Otherwise, mom's going to feed it. So we've been doing this for a long time. When I was at National Zoo, uh, there was a problem with a polar bear's tooth. And there was a vet or the vet was in the park at the time with a dentist. And he asked the polar bear keeper to close the bear in so he could come by and look. Well, not only was she able to close the bear in, but she was able to ask the bear to open its mouth and stand for exam with a veterinarian. Now the veterinarian's outside of the enclosure and he's working across a metal grid, okay, kind of like a, a heavy duty fence, right? But they were able to see that the bear had actually broken a tooth and would require dental surgery. So they scheduled that and they had to use anesthesia in order to do that. But up until that moment, and for any other bears that were not being trained by this person, they wouldn't be able to even look. It would take anesthesia just to find out that, oh, the bear just had uh, you know, like something caught between the teeth or something like that and didn't actually need dental work. It would waste all that. You know, it's dangerous for the animals to get anesthesia and it takes a lot of time. I mean, it's like at least three veterinarian staff and hours. And if the animal sees the fact that he's going to get anesthetized, they get anxious. And then it takes more anesthesia and more time. It's just, we try to avoid it for everybody's benefit. So what can you do? If I've convinced you that I've been doing this for a long time, then let me tell you what you can do to make rapid, rapid progress and to prevent stress and trauma to your animals. So the first thing is so easy. It does not even take any training skill. Name and explain. You don't remember, name and explain is a process of narrating what's going on. And it works for you on so many levels. First of all, let's say the animal didn't understand a word that you were saying. One of the best ways to protect an animal from stress is to occupy their frontal lobe. And this is with people too. So maybe your dog is saying to himself, why is she talking to me in English? Doesn't she realize I'm a dog? But I don't care. If that is all that talking to the dog produces, that is a good start because I want the dog to think. The molecules of conscious thought 
seem to directly compete with adrenaline and dopamine for cell receptor sites. So a critical thing for arming an animal against stress and panic is to get them thinking first. Get them thinking first. And a great way to do this is to start talking to them. Now, what you're going to find out is that they already know many, many, many English words, phrases, and ideas. I know you don't need me to tell you this because I don't think you had to put any work into teaching your animal the actual words for, do you want dinner? Or do you want to go in the car? Or do you want to go for a walk? The animal figured it out just by context. And they figure out a lot more than that. Like the names of everybody in the family and their name and, you know, different activities and the names of toys. But how much better is it when you systematically teach them words? And how do you do this? exactly like you do it for children. So we show them an object and we name them. Uh, we show them a body part. We touch the body part. We name that. We show them an idea like over, under, around, between. We name that. Then we teach concepts. Right versus left. Uh, up up versus down. A lot of these um, relationships that we name when we demonstrate them are related to concepts. So you've got your regular vocabulary, the name of everybody, the name of the activity, the name of the location, the name of the weather, the name of the trigger, you name it. But we also have the concepts and the concepts teach the animal about how these various things interrelate. And that leads to something called mental mapping. And this is like, whoa, this is so powerful. If you're not involved in this, get on it. Get on it. You, you, once you start, well, let me put it this way. When we do exit interviews with trainers that have gotten certified and we ask them out of everything, is there one thing? that you feel is the most valuable without exception. They all say everything's valuable. So there, but they also say that the most bang for their buck comes from name and explain. And that's not even a training skill. It's just mindfulness telling your animal partner what is going on, what will go on, what you hope they will do and giving them feedback about all of those events and occurrences. So we have the name and explain, and you can also prepare your animal ahead of need. In other words, do this training way before you need to go to the vets and teach them about having a flashlight shown in their eyes for the eye exam, um, putting a muzzle on, 
and making it fun. How can you make a muzzle fun? Well, here's one way. I have a German shepherd that, um, you know, muzzling is a really important skill for any dog, but we want to make sure that he enjoys the muzzle and doesn't just see the muzzle as being, uh oh, something bad is coming. He loves to chase balls around. I'm not talking about little balls. I'm talking about big balls. And what he wants to do is grab them with his teeth and pop them if he could. Well, that's not what I want. And um, we can do a great compromise by putting his you know, plastic box muzzle on his muzzle and set him loose with the other day we did a pumpkin he had such fun he herded that pumpkin around all over the place then he used his claws to try to grab it and kind of scratched a lot and we did that for three days before we took the muzzle off and let him kill it and he did kill it and he really enjoyed it and then we cooked it up and gave it to him so a good time was had by all and the pumpkin's good for the dogs. It increases nitrous oxide, for example. So there, you can't overdo it, but it's a great addition. So we have name and explain. Takes no special knowledge, just mindfulness. And you can do it and not depend on the vet. You can teach your animal the names of all these things and uh, the names of, you know, like alcohol and betadine and needles and, you know, just everything before you even get to the vet. Now, if you've got a great relationship with your vet and you ask them to explain things to the dogs, um, they'll probably be willing to do it. Mine is. And they might be a little bit surprised when you say, uh, when you explain it, could you be very descriptive? Like, I'm going to stick a needle in the scruff of your neck for the count of five. You ready? Here we go. Scruff, pull, injection. One, two, three, four, five. X, pull it out. Okay. That's literally the preparation for an injection. And it takes us about two minutes to prepare an animal for an injection. But if you don't prepare them, it often does not go smoothly. For example, I was working at a zoo and I was asked to introduce a horse to a syringe to get a shot in her neck. All right. Do you have a needle? Yes, they did. So they bring out the syringe and the needle. And I showed the horse, first of all, on my arm. I let her see the needle. I showed her what uh, touch, push, and prick were. I told her, ow, it hurts. Then I asked her, can I prick your neck? And I gave her a target and waited for the count of three. Then good, 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 good. Go in and touch your neck. Go back. Now, can I press your neck? One, two, three, good, 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 good. Okay, go back after I pressed her neck. Then I'm going to prick her neck. Then I'm going to stick the needle in. 
which we did. And it was an absolute non-event. And I thought, oh man, this went just so easily that they probably are not going to think this is a difficult thing. So it's a little regretful. But I turned around and I said, so how was that? And they said, very deadpan, actually. Well, that was pretty good because the last time she had the vet over the wall or she she jumped over this stall divider and had the vet up against the wall. That's what it was. They didn't mention that. They didn't mention that there was any problem. They just asked me to show this horse how to do it. But you know what? I didn't see any problem. And that happens again and again and again because of the way that I approach medical work with animals. I don't just try to bribe them or sweet talk them. I tell them exactly what's going to happen using name and explain. I focus their attention using a target. I tell them, what the steps are, I let them process that, and then I go in and get it done. Do you know that just by naming and explaining body parts at the vets, we find it's very reasonable to teach up to 15 body parts in two to five minutes, 10 body parts in the first minute, and the animals appear to remember them months later. Maybe every animal won't, but I don't remember everything that I looked at two months ago, and it takes very little review to refresh my memory. Okay, so name and explain is the first thing. Showing the animal what is going to be used. So you don't just explain about it, but you make sure that you have the things that you need to explain. So you're going to have whatever medical equipment or substances that you can assemble to teach this. You're going to um, teach the animal about the various processes, like getting bandaged, getting a, an Elizabethan collar put on, uh, getting his muzzle on, getting an injection. What about giving blood? So that's often done through the leg. And a lot of times they pick the left front leg. So work on that. Get that animal used to it. Uh, I don't know if they're still taking rectal temperatures. So back when I was in zoos, that was the thing, right? And the animals really look at that askance. And I would try to reassure them. I have only a clinical interest, okay? I have a license for this. Well, anyway, um, that's another thing you can do ahead of time, as is cleaning the ears and teaching the animals to allow you to collect, uh, to cut their nails or grind their nails. Now, the next thing would be to use feedback to tell the animal how well they're doing. And this takes nuance. You know, whereas the name explain is very cut and dry, um, giving feedback is not so cut and dry. And I'll tell you, 
there's a myth that has been aggressively perpetrated that a mechanical marker is superior to a verbal marker because it's the same every time. And you know what? That sameness is not an asset. It is not an asset. When it comes to communication, nuance is important. So for example, all vet visits are not the same. Some are more difficult than others. Some things are more painful. Some things take more time. Do you really want to use a marker that just goes ding, 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 ding? Or do you want to be able to say, okay, good, 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 good. You did great on that. Are you ready for the next thing? All right, you're an ace. You can do this. You ready? Set. Hold. Good. I am going to guarantee you that modulating your bridge will make you a more effective reinforcer. And when I say that, I mean it on two levels. I mean that you're going to become better at providing reinforcement, but you're also going to become more a part of the reinforcement. Don't believe me? Test it and then take it to the bank. Now, there's a lot that we do in training specific behaviors. And uh, what I would like to say on that, because we can't go into everything here, right? But what I'd like to say is that if you are not using targets, if you are not using concepts where you can explain to the animal exactly what's happening and prepare them for each step and then do each step and get out of the luring or trial and error business. Okay, luring is not a substitute for targeting. For one thing, let's just take that uh, rectal temperature, okay? Maybe your vet doesn't use that anymore, but if they do, how are you going to get that trained using luring? How are you going to train an animal to move shoulders and hips simultaneously sideways? Okay, so the head is, you know, pointed forward, and you want this animal to move laterally, not forward at all, just laterally. How are you going to get that with luring? Not to mention the fact that when an animal's being lured, he's not in the mode of mental processing that he is when he knows that you're showing him information. He's thinking, wow, I want to get that food. Now, here is something you can think of that will give you an idea of what the problem is with luring, besides the fact that there's a lot of things you can't learn. Oh, yeah, and there's the fact that people really have a problem getting past the food dependency. But think of this. Have you ever followed somebody to an event like a party or to their house? Um, and you got there just fine, right? 
but could you remember how to get there again? Now, this is something I know a lot about because when I do seminars, I get driven everywhere because otherwise I probably wouldn't get there. All right. That's not my strength. So people come pick me up and they take me and maybe I've been to the same place a hundred times and I don't know how to get there because I'm always talking to the people and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say and you know, I'm distracted. So if you think that following a lure, it may result in the immediate appearance of a behavior and the assumption that the animal consciously understands what he's doing or even has rotely created the neural pathway that trial and error, that's what they hope that they will do. But if you test it, you're going to find that it's faster to use targeting and name and explain. So get on it. So you can't lure for everything. And you can't do trial and error. Because it's just too inefficient. Way back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, clicker trainers were publishing that it took six to 12, you know, six to eight to 12 weeks to teach a target. They were putting a Coke bottle in the middle of a floor and waiting for a horse to go over and touch it. You know what? Never happened. It took a long time. What is relevant about a Coke bot? But we can make a target immediately relevant by the way we present it to an animal. You know how long it takes a bridge and target trainer to introduce targets? Less than a minute. In fact, we can teach the terminal and intermediate bridge and the two finger target in less than a minute. We can add the other two targets, the other two basic targets, which would be target pole and target station and their hierarchies in another two minutes. We can add duration up to uh, a second in another minute or two. I mean, this is fast. Why is it fast? Because we can make it clear to the animal what is required for success. So we're not just sitting there making the animal try random things until they happen to hit it. All right, so we're gonna stop there with techniques. Believe me, we've got plenty more. That's great for right now. So food versus uh, fear-free is based on food and pheromones. And I noted that pheromones may have side effects. And food, uh, you can have problems with, you know, like sometimes you shouldn't give food and sometimes you can't give food. The animal may have allergies or sensitivities, or he just won't eat. And no matter how much food you have, it does not make up for violation. So what do you do instead? 
You treat the animal like a thinking adult. You explain what you're going to do, what's happening, what you want them to do, and you give them feedback. And we mentioned the bridges. I'll just make sure that I mention that we use at least two kinds of bridge, the intermediate and the terminal. The terminal says, yes, you did it. You hit it. And the intermediate says, if you continue on this path, you will meet success. And it sounds like something like this, good, 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 good. Or D, 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 D. Or X, 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 X. And you can mix and match them because your tongue will get fatigued on any particular one. And they actually do have different properties. Like good is really good for animals that are... um really strong in their own agenda, right? They're kind of preoccupied. Whereas X is very precise. And when you're talking about the bridges, we already said we want to modulate them. And let me tell you and um, bring to mind another point where, you know, people that have said that a mechanical bridge is superior because it's exactly the same all the time. And they'll often say it's more precise. Well, if by more precise, you mean that it more precisely marks the instant of time that's critical, then a verbal bridge is more precise. Just think about it. A clicker has two sounds. So which part of that sound, the sound takes on the ones that I've tested, a third of a second, and it has two sounds. So what is the actual bridge? Is it the leading edge of sound? Is it the trailing edge of sound? Or is it the average between the two, the midpoint? Nobody even deals with that. Furthermore, my bridges, you just heard them, are at least 7.82 to 7.83 per second. By the way, that's a magic number. Uh, look up one of the podcasts on bridging if you want to know why and how that is magic. But we're doing approximately eight a second. So that animal is within an eighth of a second of a correct response if he makes a mistake. So with a clicker, you can only do three responses, three bridges in a second, because it just takes the clicker that long to go through its cycle. Whereas we can do eight. That's more than twice as fast and precise. So there you go, guys. Great direction that vets are going, but we already have long had the technology to drive it further forward in dramatic ways. So let's get on it. Um, if you're a pet owner, you need to prepare your animals and talk to your vets and help them ease into it. I'm guarantee you when they see how great the animals are, they're going to be happy and be patient because uh, Dr. Alan Hoff in the Netherlands is fantastic. He's got wonderful way with the animals. 
but we have a number of videos online showing him working with animals and the animals that were set strain were just so cooperative, so quiet. And he just commented, well, yeah, that's great, but this is an easy animal. Oh yeah, this is another easy animal. And the owner of the so-called easy animal goes, no, 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 remember last time he was screaming his head, oh yeah, oh yeah. Of course a vet doesn't remember every time that he sees an animal a year ago and so on, but the owner remembered it. This was a huge difference. So you've got to give the vets time to ease into having a different expectation. Just like me with a horse at the zoo, I didn't know that she could be really difficult. So no matter how difficult your animal has been, when you start working with him differently, he may very well turn out to be not difficult because you're approaching things differently. And definitely get your animal ready for things like Elizabethan collars and muzzles before the animal has the stress of having to recuperate from something and also the stress of adjusting to something that interferes with what they want to do. All right. I hope you go put those to the test and you will be very glad you did. Thank you very much. See you next time. And please share this. And if you like it, subscribe. It helps us a lot. Take care. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Covert on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.